open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, we come to another one of those uh, commands that's uh, a struggle in our culture, in our environment. Uh, simply put, do not commit adultery. Uh, as with the previous uh, command that we looked at last week, it's in the Hebrew, it's just two words. Don't do it. <laughs> okay? And um, it is it is really a, a plague in our culture in a lot of ways. Um, at the previous church I served at, um, I was the first pastor to serve there uh, throughout his tenure and so forth who did not fall prey to adultery. Okay? In the history of the church. Um some research shows that as many as uh, as much as forty percent of pastors have fallen prey to adultery in their work in their ministry. Okay, so this is not just something that uh, affects both the lay people and their work and their life. It is something that uh, pervades our society at every level. It is it is an issue of significant importance, and um, it starts the importance of it starts really with our understanding marriage. Um, in order for us to really understand the significance, the principle behind this particular law and why it's present, uh, we have to understand what marriage is. Um, and, and this is this is again, this is something that's going to affect most of us. Uh, over ninety percent of people will be married at least once by the age of fifty. Okay, uh, in America, over ninety percent of people. So that's something that is. That's pretty pervasive in your culture, if, if that's if that's a reality, if that's the truth. And so it's important for us to understand what marriage is. First of all, marriage is a covenant. Okay. And, and that's 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 a strong biblical word. It is a it is a strong concept to to even begin to consider that that it's not just, you know, hey, let's do it. You know, got nothing better to do. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, it is. It's a covenant. It, it's an agreement between those two individuals and God uh, to enter into uh, a lifelong commitment with each other. And because that's what it is, that's why you can't redefine marriage. It's why you can't um, classify it according to the whims of the culture and so forth. It is something that God Himself has established, and God Himself is a part of. It's not a man-centered reality. It is a God-centered reality in terms of what we do. Um, one of the reasons, um, that's one of the reasons when, when I do a wedding, when I do a ceremony, I won't do it unless the couple has gone through premarital counseling, through some time with people where they're interacting, where they're talking through some of the issues they're going to face, some of the, the matters that they may not have considered, you know, young love, uh, sometimes kind of, uh, blind <laughs> to the realities of what life might bring and, and the difficulties, you know. Oh, we're just we're just going to live on love, okay? Well, good for you. Uh, <laughs> there are some other things that go into it than that. Um, uh, marriage is is a significant expression of that, and along with that, we need to understand that marriage is also a it's also a picture, okay? It's it's not just a picture again of love. It's not just an expression of that. Um, you know, when you read in Ephesians chapter 5, what's called the household code, you 
know, the, the, the code about how wives are to act to their husbands and husbands are to act to their wives and so forth. Um, Paul, Paul says, what about it? He says that, that you do this because it's a picture of how Christ loves the church. Okay? And that, um, that we're to lay down our lives. Husbands are to lay down our lives just as Christ did for the church. And that we're to nourish each other just as Christ has nourished the church. Paul calls it a, a, a profound mystery that marriage is this picture of Christ and the church. That's a pretty pretty heavy weight to put on any institution to suggest that something we get to participate in, something we get to uh, have a great amount of say in, is meant to reveal and to relate how Jesus relates to his people. That the marriage relationships that we witness, that we enjoy, are, are meant to communicate the deep love that God has for us. And, and meant to relate the, the, the power of that love and how it can move you through circumstances and situations that you didn't see yourself able to get through. Okay? That you didn't see yourself able to, to accomplish. It is also a giving of self. Okay. In Paul's expression there in Ephesians 5, he, he quotes the passage from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to or cling to, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. To leaving and, and cleaving, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a binding. It's it's a tight grip. There is no human relationship more significant than the marital relationship. Not parent to child, not you know boss to employee, no no whatever you know these things that we give other priorities to. They're all secondary to the marital relationship. It is it is a centerpiece, and because it's such a, an important part of how we understand God and how we understand ourselves and. And, and we give ourselves to it, and, and we, we commit to it. To do something that would break that relationship. To do something that would damage something that is so highly elevated in Scripture, something that is so significant, carries a lot of weight. It's put up there right alongside murder. Now, you, you, you look at our culture, you look at, even the church culture in some ways, we don't, we don't put it in that category. And yet that's exactly where Scripture puts it. So let's take a look at some of the realities about adultery. And, and the first I would simply point out is it's not a minor issue. Going to the heart of what marriage is, adultery is not a minor issue. It's, it's one of those crimes in the Old Testament that was guilty that if you're found guilty of, you were worthy of the death penalty in the Old Testament for adultery. And that's not something God takes lightly. We just looked at that last week, the whole issue of the importance of, of life and, and the vitality of life and, and, and God's desire for life to be expressed and lived and enjoyed to, to bring anything into the discussion that would be worthy of Taking life 
tells you how important it is, how significant it is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's, it's, it's in the list that Paul gives there for those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, Paul is not saying there in any way that, that having committed that, you're, you're forever counted out of, of heaven. Because how does he end that whole list? And so were some of you, but Christ has cleansed you. Okay, so there is forgiveness for it, but just the fact, again, that it's in that list tells us that it's significant. It's one of the, it's part of what's called the exception clause for divorce. When Jesus talks about it in the Gospels, that divorce is not permissible except in the case of pornea, fornication, which would include adultery. Now, how does that make it a big deal? Because God hates divorce, Scripture tells us. So if there's something that's going to, to again, be permissible in, in an environment of something that God despises, that, that should tell us that is a big deal. Adultery is not a minor issue. It is something of significance to God and, and to humanity. Another truth about adultery, however, is that it's an act of the heart first. It, it begins in our heart. Jesus in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus here is not challenging their teaching on adultery. He is challenging their hearts, challenging our hearts. He's calling us to something significant. We might believe certain actions are wrong, but do we practice them? Do we follow them? Is it built into our worldview? Is it something that we would change relationships if necessary to avoid? It is, it is a hard issue. And as such, it may never involve sexual relations at all. Adultery may, may never actually involve a physical interaction between a man and a woman. If it is in the heart, if it's built into our heart, if it's built into our worldview, if, as Jesus says, to look on a woman lustfully is to commit adultery, then we can say with great assurance that adultery may never involve physical contact with that person. You have the realities of pornography and the great problem that it is for our culture today. It used to be if you wanted to view pornography in some way, you had to go to the local convenience store and you had to stand there in front of some checker or something and say, I want that magazine or I want that. There was some level of public shame in, in following through with it. Not anymore. It's just a click away. It's just a search away. And so it has become pervasive. It's become a sickness. It's become a disease 
that infects hearts and minds and destroys relationships for so many reasons. Because it builds up false expectations of what you might expect from your spouse or or it creates a, a, a barrier to being able to connect with your spouse because your thoughts, the images in your head are about someone else. But you also have the reality of emotional adultery. Okay. Emotional adultery is when you are so connected to another individual that you're giving that individual your attention, your focus, your energy that rightfully only belongs to your spouse. Again, may not involve a, a physical relationship at all. But they're the person you think of. They're the person you go to with when you have the issues, the problems, the, the hardships of life. They're the person that, that you lean on. The person you wish were your spouse. That's adultery too. But it's also not inevitable. It's not a reality that we have to give in to. Divorce is not something that is a necessity in life. We're sometimes told that the divorce rate is roughly 50%. Okay. And that's what studies show. And then you'll often hear attached to that phrase, and it's the same for Christians, if not worse. But if you change the quotient from, quote, Christian to people who are regularly involved in a church, the divorce rate drops to 27%. This idea that being, quote, a Christian will, doesn't make you any less susceptible to, to adultery, to divorce, those sorts of things, it's just not backed up. What these studies have shown where they say it's 50% for Christians too is that they're basically just asking, are you a Christian? But when you add in the categories of regular attendance in church and, and involvement in that body of believers and encouragement from the body of believers, again, that number drops significantly. Your life in the church, your life in God's Word, your life in fellowship with Him makes a huge difference in your life, in your marriage, and in your commitments, and in what you're able to do. It does empower you. It does grant you the ability to say no to sin. In Sunday school this morning, we were in, in James chapter 4. And James gives two clear instructions about, about how to uh, resist falling to sin. And we often think of the one, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Say no to the devil, and that's certainly true. But what does James say right before that? It's the first step. It's the most important step. Submit to God. Listen to God's word. Listen to God's way. Understand God's mind and heart and, and experience that. Walk in that. Relate to that. And you will find power to say no to sin, all sin. 
Again, I'm not advocating that perfection is possible. What I'm advocating for is that excuses need to stop being made. That we have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, living in us, directing us, that will help us through these realities. So how do we avoid adultery? How do we avoid these realities? We do so by pursuing purity in our relationships. And this is something that's true across the board. Whether you're married or not, whether you're, you're, you're thinking about marriage or not, pursuing purity in relationships is a significant part. And we see that firstly because one covenant feeds another. Our relationship with God feeds our relationships with people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's a reason they're always in that order. There's a reason those are always listed together. There's a reason that, that Jesus said those are the two great commandments. Because our relationship with God feeds our relationship with others. And so we need that core. We need that foundation. We need that connection. Secondly, we need to realize, this is for those who aren't married yet, that sexual purity before marriage strengthens purity in marriage. There's become a, a, a cultural reality that, that suggests that cohabitation, living together before marriage, is, is a healthy approach to figuring out if you should be married or not. It's, it's the mindset. Something like 70% of couples have at least given serious consideration to living together before marriage. But you know what the studies show? Research indicates that couples who live together before marriage have a 50% higher divorce rate than those who don't. Fifty percent higher divorce rate than those who don't. And as I was looking through various studies, seeing if my if my numbers are still up to date and so forth, in in in, in expressing that this week, sociologists and and people who study this sort of thing, they don't understand why. Because they say in their minds that's counterintuitive. You would think if you lived together before you got married, you would be able to figure things out and these sorts of things and. And then you know if you should get married and so forth. And, and they've, they've, they've gone so far as to, to re, um, recalculate their studies, apply different precepts to try and get the number where they want the number and so forth, to try and fix so it, quote, makes sense to them. Okay. But study after study after study, one done just last year, demonstrated that couples who live together are far more likely to divorce than those who don't. And the reason for it is actually pretty simple. And that is that, as Rachel Sussman says, couples who live together before marriage are not practicing marriage, they're practicing a lack of commitment. They're doing what? As they enter into that relationship, and they say, let's live together, they're, they're what? They're saying, 
I'm really not ready to commit to you, so let's see if we can get by without that commitment. Let's see if we can make it without that commitment first. Now, they would never couch it that way, but that's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly the, the, the statement they're making. And so when they finally get into marriage, what? Okay, we, we have this agreement, but you know what? I had sex before without commitment. I can have sex now without commitment. You've already made that decision in your mind. And so going to somebody else for those relationships and, and those sorts of things becomes all the more easy. It is significant. It is important that we recognize the impact that that these decisions have on the rest of our life, the, the, the tone they set, the, the priorities they express. Understand, God is not opposed to sex. He invented it. He's not trying to rob us of our fun. But He's trying to give us categories and priorities and things that what make it a health, more healthy expression that makes something makes it something that heals and that bonds and that and that creates that connection rather than something that's about us really individually the third thing we can do is to take personal responsibility This means, as I'm using it here, that it's not somebody else's fault if we slip into adultery. Typically at this point, uh, a preacher will point out, well, women, you, you, need to, you need to stop dressing so seductively. I don't know how many sermons I've heard on this subject that where the preacher tar targets the women and says, you need to dress this certain way, you need to do these certain things. And never once mentions, men, get a grip on yourselves. Hold the line. You have a responsibility for these things. And one of the things we as men can do is picture those women, understand those women as our sisters in Christ. To understand that, to, to begin to, to, to see that, to see women as family is to help. But even if that doesn't help, we're not weak. We can say no. We can train our minds that when those things, those thoughts pop into our heads, we can say, no, I'm not going to entertain that. I'm not going to let that fester. I'm not going to let that begin to grow. I'm going to resist the devil because I've submitted to God. And James says, what? Satan will flee from you. But it's important in, in our relationships, all of our relationships, that we, we take personal responsibility and we think about the other person. How, what can I do to help them? What can I do that's maybe creating a temptation that shouldn't be? What can I do to relate more appropriately. 
Fourth, we need to, to guard our eyes and our hearts. Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. That's Jesus speaking there. Those are Jesus' instructions there. Now again, not necessarily, I don't think that Jesus would literally have us poke out our eyes. But the point is made that the marital relation takes priority. And sometimes it will require radical steps. You know what, guys, girls? If you're struggling with pornography on the computer, it might be time to get rid of the computer. Oh, I can't do that. I love my computer. I do so much on my computer. It does so many good things. You know what? Your marriage is more important than all of those things. And if it means getting rid of that computer in order to get rid of that thing, to get rid of that temptation, then by all means do it. Well, what about my phone? I got a smartphone. I, you know, you know what? There are phones out there. There are phone companies, Gab Wireless, G-A-B-B, that will get you a smartphone, looks like a smartphone, that does not allow internet connection. Those are still available. Okay. Um, we, got, we got one for our youngest just to make life easier for him in, in, in all sorts of ways. There are ways, there are avenues you can go. If you just can't say no to something, then get rid of it. There are steps we can take. And I'm not talking about a legalism. I'm not talking about, you know, oh, I'm going to walk around like this the rest of my life so that I'm not tempted. I'm talking about taking responsibility. And if what you're encountering there does not, you cannot figure out a way to appropriately, in adult fashion, deal with something, then get rid of it. Better to cut off your arm than for it to destroy your marriage. It's the idea. And so lastly, we suggest going on the offense. It's an old saying, the best defense is a good offense. That's true in this reality. And there are several ways we can go on the offense. Number one, build accountability. Whether that means forming an accountability group, some, some group or some individual that you can talk to who's not your spouse, who you, can, who you know will hold you accountable, who you know will look through your, your, your lies. Oh, yeah, things are going great. Yeah, no, they're not. If you have one of those friends, if you have a person like that who who's really going to hold your feet to the fire, then you have a, a great treasure there. If you don't have that, seek that out. Build those relationships. Another way to go on the offense is to, to nurture healthy desires. We're so good at feeding the negative desires and the negative pools and the negative realities of our life. We need to start feeding the healthy ones. 
those things that, that enhance a person standing in our, in our heart and mind so that we don't see them as an object to be, to be utilized or manipulated or, or misused for our purposes. We see them as somebody of value. Too often, even in marriages, that the spouse has become this object that is meant to, to feed me or to elevate me or to, to help me in my journey. Instead of a spouse being a partner that we look at with love and appreciation that we value and that we elevate them. I've never seen a marriage where both people were constantly seeking the well-being of the other that wasn't successful. Never. And it's not just about making your marriage last. It's about making your marriage making it something that is significant. And so another part of going on the offense is, is just meeting needs. What do we need in marriage? We need security. We need a sense of, yes, that person is going to be there for me. How do we communicate that? We, we, we think, especially guys, I'll be real honest, we're guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. They should just know they're important to me. Okay? They should just know that I value them. I shouldn't have to tell them that. I married them, didn't I? I work for them, don't I? I bring home hay and those sorts of things. I provide, don't I? They should be able to take all of those facts and just bring them all together and know that I love them. And that they're secure. Now, in the words of the great theologian Billy Joel, you got to tell her about it. Okay? You got to let her know that you care. She needs to hear those things. And there's different ways that you need to discover how she hears those things best. Some hear it real well with words, others through acts of service, others through gifts, others know the one you're with. Express those things. Communicate those things. Another real basic need, important need, is respect. Both men and women need respect. We need to know that that person that we're walking beside sees what we're doing as something of worth. Sees something that, that we're doing as something of value. They value us. They respect us. In my experience, dealing with couples over the years, the, the, the temptation to adultery almost always starts where the person is getting the respect or the attention from the other person that they're not getting from their spouse. She doesn't respect me anymore. She doesn't hold me in high value anymore. And that other person comes around and says, look how great you are. Oh, really? And it starts just like that. And so we're able to feed this respect, and we're able to feed that security. And if we're able to, to do that, both, both husband and wife doing that for each other, that builds the bond. And you won't want to be looking elsewhere. Because you're getting what you need right there. 
but it involves both partners. If just one partner's doing it and the other one's not, it's not going to work. It takes both investing in it. But ultimately, the most offense-based reality we can do is finding satisfaction with Jesus at the core of who we are. If Jesus satisfies us, if we find wholeness and completion and fulfillment in who He is in our lives, that'll help us to be able to deal with lack of satisfaction in other places. It'll help us to be able to deal with the temptations and the struggles, whatever area of life you're dealing with. If you've found satisfaction, if you've found joy, if you've found completeness in Jesus, the other parts of your life will fall into place. But the only way you can do that is, again, as James says, submit to God. Surrender. Humble yourselves before Him, and He will lift you up. Find yourself before Christ in a status of submission and commitment and, and seeing His worth and His value and His power in your life and the other parts of our life will fall into place. You'll begin to value those who are made in His image. You'll begin to understand the, the picture of what it means for, uh, for marriage to be a picture of how Christ gave Himself for the church. None of that matters if you don't value Him first and you don't see His position, His authority, His role in your life. That's part of the journey. So this morning, if you're here and you don't have that relationship with Jesus or, or it's begun to take a second place or a second position in your life, in your commitments, let me just encourage you to, to return to Christ to return to the one who loves you and who made you, to return to Him as the center of your focus. Let me encourage those of you who may not have ever done that to, to, to come to Him, to realize he, He's not this cosmic killjoy who's up there trying to destroy your fun. He came so that you might have life and have it abundantly, to the fullest. Surrender to the one who loves you and who died for you who gave his life so that you might live. Find yourself in Jesus, and you will begin to find yourself in the other areas of life as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. God, I pray that you would help each of us to, to prioritize you. And in so doing, see the priority you put on the marital relationship, the priority you put on our sexual health, those things that are most intimate and significant to us, Lord. You've given us, as an expression of your goodness, Lord, may we learn not to distort, to destroy, or to misrepresent them. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, that you would draw them in your power and they would respond in faith and experience the life that only you can give. 
Lord, please use this time to redirect our hearts and our minds to call us to yourself. And maybe be responsive. In Christ's name we pray these things.